Coming up on Philosophy Talk, altruism. Something very strange about this girl. What? She's too good. Too good. I mean, she's giving and caring and genuinely concerned about the welfare of others. I can't be with someone like that. Martin Luther King said, Every man must decide whether he will walk in the light of creative altruism or in the darkness of destructive selfishness. Ayn Rand said, If any civilization is to survive, it is the morality of altruism that men have to reject. Our guest is Jeff Schloss, chair of the biology department at Westmont College. Altruism, coming up on Philosophy Talk, after the news. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're coming to you from the studios of KALW San Francisco. Continuing conversations that begin at Philosopher's Corner on the Stanford campus. Today, altruism, from biology to psychology to morality. Yeah, from biology to psychology to morality, that's, that's part of the problem. It's become a very ambiguous term. Psychological altruism, that's the question. Do people behave out of concern for the well-being of others without regard to their own self-interest? The moral issue, should they? Then biologists use altruism to, to talk about genes of all things. Biological altruism refers to behavior that helps the survival of the species without the individual. It's when, when, the, when a member of the species does something to help, help his co-specific Friends have more children, but doesn't help him have more children, doesn't get his genes out there. So that's an interesting concept. It's hard to see why, why there would be biological altruism. But what are these two forms of altruism supposed to have to do with each other? Well, it's a question of human nature, John. I mean, evolution designs human nature. Some people think that human beings are by nature selfish. We've got to tr be trained into things like altruism. But evolutionary biology and and psychology are beginning to challenge this idea. It turns out that evolution has hardwired altruistic behavior into many animals, including especially human beings. Yeah, but I think you're just uh, falling into this ambiguous mosh mixing is and ought, Ken. I mean, human altruism, morality of altruism, that's a fairly clear question. Do we and should we do things for other people at, at, at the expense of ourselves? But even if some animals have evolved to be altruistic in the biology sense, what does that have to do with human altruism being morally right or wrong? Biological altruism just is a challenge to the old selfish gene hypothesis. The selfish gene hypothesis? What would that be? Well, that's the hypothesis that genes are solely in the business of replicating themselves and that an animal is basically the tool of its genes. So it, so it wouldn't do these things that help the genes of other animals. Uh, genes would just do whatever they have to do to get themselves reproduced as often as possible in subsequent generations. Well, that's a peculiar use of the word selfish. I mean, genes don't have a self. They don't have any self-consciousness. So they don't really have self-interest. So that doesn't make any yeah, sense. Yeah, you're beginning to catch on, Ken. It's just weird. That's why biological altruism is different from psychological altruism and has nothing to do with morality. 
Richard Dawkins coined the phrase selfish gene as a metaphor. He was just trying to say that genes act as if they're totally self-centered. Well, that does raise a question. If genes are so metaphorically selfish, how does even biological altruism evolve or happen? Well, it just turns out that things are a little more complicated than, than contemplated. Lots of organisms behave in ways that do, in fact, uh, deter their own chances for survival and, 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 and put their own genes at a disadvantage compared to others. For example, a vervet monkey will give an alarm call to warn other monkeys of the presence of predators, even though this attracts attention to itself, increasing its own chances of being attacked and killed. So now we've got the selfless gene hypothesis? Is that what I'm supposed to understand? Well, it's, it's really misleading to think of the genes as being selfish or not. It's the whole group or population. A group that contains some altruists will survive better as a group than a group that contains no altruists. Evolution, it turns out, can work on whole groups as a unit. That's called group selection can. Okay, I, I get it. I'm educated. But let's go back to this is-ought thing we were talking about. Isn't there a way to tie biological and psychological altruism together? I mean, we don't all have to be willing to die for our country, but some of us had better be. And now maybe that mechanism of group selection that you just talked about has helped shape the human psyche so that a lot of us will be altruistic in our psychological makeup enough to benefit the whole group. But but people don't just do what their genes tell them to do as if their genes were talking to them. People act on beliefs, desires, hopes, and fears, on conceptions and ideals of right and wrong. What's that got to do with evolution? Well, evolution designs human beings. It design, We're just biological organisms. Our brain is just another organ. So maybe it's likely, I think it's highly likely, that even our conception of right and wrong is a product of evolutionary forces. So I wouldn't be surprised to find a tendency toward altruistic thinking wired into our very neurons by that same mechanism of group selection that you just talked about. Would you be surprised? Oh, I, I wouldn't be surprised to find somebody issue a press release think, saying they'd found it. But I'm really, I'm really not the man to answer the, these questions, Ken. Our, our guest is Jeffrey Schloss, is an expert on both biological and psychological altruism. And today we'll start our conversation by digging in with Professor Schloss deeper into questions of how does evolution explain altruism. Next, we'll ask exactly what biological altruism has to do with psychological altruism and the conceptions of altruism being right or wrong. And we'll close by examining how altruistic human beings are and should be. We want your input into this discussion, so write down this number, 1-800-525-9000. This is an encore presentation of Philosophy Talk. The phone lines are closed. But first, our roving philosophical reporter, Polly Strikers, uncovers a curious case of altruism in a non-human animal. She files this report. Unless you're family, altruism is rare in the animal kingdom. Being selfish pays. Gerald Wilkinson is a biologist at the University of Maryland. He says scientists have long been looking for examples of altruism in non-human animals. Invariably, when people have gone out to look, particularly in cases like honeybees, but also in lots of other animals, and you ask, well, who is doing this uh, altruistic behavior and who are they doing it for? Invariably, they're closely related. But not all the time. Wilkinson says a form of altruism does exist in the animal kingdom. It's called reciprocal altruism where one individual will help another and get repaid in the future, a kind of blank check. One place these checks get written is in the bat cave. To the Batmobile. If I was to pick a bat that was uh, warm and fuzzy and helpful, I would pick a vampire bat. It is, without question, the most helpful social, would be the way I would describe it, bat that has been described. 
Turns out, vampire bats don't care if you're family. I learned that bats would only feed other bats that they had spent time with in the recent past. I mean, other people have referred to this as they were friends. And that was the best predictor of who would feed whom. It was better than how closely related the bats were. There are many reasons why a bat might miss a meal and need to ask another bat for a snack. Vampire bats are lunar-phobic and don't like to fly during full moon. They might be young and inexperienced at inflicting the trademark painless bite on an unsuspecting cow or horse. Whatever the reason, Wilkinson's research shows that vampire bats will die if they go without a blood meal for more than two nights in a row. Here's how it works. An individual that wants a blood meal will approach another and start to groom and then move on to actually lick at the lips of the other individual. You have to think about them hanging upside down while they're doing this. And if the uh, potential donor is willing, then a regurgitation will occur that can last several minutes and pass several milliliters of blood, which by my calculations is more than enough to get the bat through the day and enable it to feed for the next night. This altruism only goes so far, however. Females help females, and males will sometimes help females. But no one helps male vampire bats who come and go and don't stay in the tight female social groups. I have seen males actually give females and give female offspring blood, but never the reverse. One possibility is that they're giving blood in order to gain access to females in order to gain access to mating. Poor male bats. Perhaps that's why they only live about half as long as females, who can live for up to 20 years. This sounds good if you're a female vampire bat, but is it really altruism? I think in the short term, it would have to qualify as altruism in that this animal could use that blood that it gives away for its own survival or possibly for its own offspring. But an individual that donates now is actually going to get repaid later. In my mind, in that sort of long-term sense, it is essentially selfish for the individual to participate in this exchange system. You'll have to decide for yourself if this is altruism. One thing's for certain. Forget a vampire bat being nice to you if you're an outsider. I've never been fed on by a vampire bat. I have been bitten handling them. And in that kind of situation, they don't bite painlessly. <laughs> they bite to hurt. For Philosophy Talk, I'm Polly Stryker. I'm John Perry. With me is Ken Taylor. And our guest today is Jeff Schloss. He's professor and chair of biology at Westmont College. He's editor of Altruism and Altruistic Love, Science, Philosophy, and Religion in Dialogue. Jeff, welcome to Philosophy Talks. It's great to be with you. Thanks. Uh, Jeff, from your book, it's, it, your interest in, in reconciling science, religion, and philosophy is pretty clear. How, how did altruism come to fit into this project and goal? Well, a couple of reasons. One, personal, <laughs> I think... We're all interested in love, and in my particular case, my father is a Holocaust survivor from Germany, so that that aspect of our family heritage involves maybe one of the greatest failures of altruism, and in some heroic cases, one of the greatest manifestations. But beyond the merely personal, uh, in evolutionary theory, altruism uh, represents one of the most fascinating detective stories over the last few years, and in terms of the implications of, of science for uh, how we live our lives, both in terms of its power to inform it 
And also in terms of its limitations, there may be no more important issue than altruism. Well, the selfish gene hypothesis seems kind of logical and plausible, but, but how, how, how starting from that point do we, do we ever get this biological altruism? How, how do bio, biologists explain the kind of altruism we heard about in the roving philosophical reporter's report? Well, you know, uh, this is a quandary that Darwin himself wrestled with, and long before the term selfish gene, or we even know, knew there were such things as genes, Darwin said that uh, the existence of a trait in one organism exclusively benefiting another would, quote-unquote, annihilate my theory. Mm -hmm. And the logic is pretty simple. If there uh, are traits that are reproducible in us that cause us not to reproduce, they are not going to be here down the road. Now, how do we explain it? Right, because mm -hmm. it seems like you just told me we couldn't explain it, and Darwin despaired of explaining yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, we went 100 years without being able to explain it well, but the segment you just had was a huge step forward. Uh, sometimes we can do things for others if down the road we get reciprocated, so that's one explanation. That's called reciprocal altruism. Absolutely. And the other a major breakthrough was a theory called kin selection, where we can do something for somebody else and actually not get reciprocated if they share our genes. Mm -hmm. Then we're getting our genes into the next generation, even if they're not coming from us. So it's not this particular gene, but it's any copy, any copy of that gene that we're after replicating. That's and right. My siblings share a lot of my genes, so absolutely. So uh, JBS Aldane doodling on a napkin once in a pub said, "I'll gladly uh, give my life for two brothers or eight cousins," and that's the. That's the kin selection. Uh, I see. So, so. I mean, by having two brothers, you get as many genes into the next generation yeah. as you have by having eight cousins. Now, we got a lot of mileage out of those two ideas. It launched the, uh, the, the discipline sociobiology, but it turns out that those ideas don't solve the problem, as, as both of you pointed out in your opening segment. Well, I mean, uh, reciprocal altruism it, it is kind of like a Humean type of agreement. You, uh, you know, I'll rub your back if you rub my back. And, you know, that's not really altruism, right? Altruism is I'll rub your back even if you don't have any arms and can't rub my back. And not that's only right. is reciprocal altruism not altruism, kin selection isn't really altruism either. But we'll dig into what really it is after a short break. You're okay. listening to Philosophy Talk. Today we're discussing altruism with Jeff Schloss, editor of Altruism and Altruistic Love. We've been talking about altruism in plants, animals, and other beings. But what, if anything, does biological altruism have to do with human psychology and human morality? Just because some animals and maybe even some humans are hardwired for altruistic behavior, does that make altruism morally mandatory? You can join us by calling toll-free at 1-800... You're listening to an encore presentation of Philosophy Talk. The phone lines are closed. Separating the is of evolution from the ought of morality, plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. Introduce me to your neighborhood Seem like I ain't never had so many friends before That's because you're good You're so good Doing good. Altruism. Our theme this week on Philosophy Talk. Are people by nature altruistic? Or do we always have some kind of hidden agenda even when we appear to be acting altruistically? Have you ever committed an act of pure altruism? Share your thoughts and experiences with us. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. We're discussing altruism from biology to morality. You can join the conversation by calling toll-free 1-800-525. You're hearing an encore presentation of Philosophy Talk. The phone lines are closed. 
or email us at comments at philosophytalk.org. Our guest is Jeff Schloss, editor of Altruism and Altruistic Love. So, Jeff, we, as John likes to say, quickened the sense of the queer. I mean, uh, how did this uh, how did this altruism evolve? It seems evident that it's there, but we offered two explanations, reciprocal altruism and uh, kin selection, neither of which seems real altruism. Right. Is there real altruism in nature? And if there is, how did it evolve? Well, you know, that, that's still a huge and fascinating topic of debate. And back to the uh, the distinction you made at the opening segment between intentions and consequences, even kin selection and reciprocal altruism. Well, that could be real in terms of our intentions. We could really give to others without any conscious expectation of return as long as they shared our genes or, even, or down the road we got it back, even if we weren't expecting it. But the problem with that is... There is no actual giving away in those things. So biologists have faced that. Nature pushes back on our ideas and, and uh, come up with several new and exciting proposals. You Tell me the new, the new most, exci- the most exciting proposal by your lights. The most? Can I, can I give you two? Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. There's a tie. Yeah. So, uh, we'll be nice and kind and altruistic and let you give us two. So, so they're really divided right now. And, and one is... Okay, you get you get benefits uh, around the corner that you might not anticipate. Uh, a proposal is indirect reciprocity. I might be really kind to Ken, even if I know Ken's not going to do anything back, because John will see it, right. and I'll have an enhancement of your reputation. Right. Mm-hmm. So um, Robert Wright says nobody ever wants really to teach their children to be good. They want to teach their children to be bad and get away with it. You know who said that? I've got to tell you who said that yeah. first. Plato said yeah, that first right. in the Republic. But anyway, that's yeah. one. So that's one. Uh, and kind of the other extreme is, uh, well, it relates to what John was saying in, in the opening segment. It's, Look, a, a lot of that indirect reciprocity, which is ultimately uh, self-enhancing, surely exists for humans. But we do a lot of things that don't meet that. Uh, Holocaust rescuers, for example, no enhancement of reputation. Mm-hmm. And so in cases like that, um, maybe maybe ideas in human beings have the power to subvert the self-serving thrust of the gene. And that right. that... that Yes, that means, but that means like if, if evolution and selection are about the genes, and then ideas are about culture. That means cultures up here and can make human beings do things that, in one way, are kind of maladaptive. Is that a nice solution? So we got evolution pushing one way and culture pushing like in an opposite way. That's a little odd, don't you think? Well, it, it is more than a little odd if, in fact, you want to explain uh, everything with one tool, if you want to explain everything with the tool of genetic selection. And that's why that idea is so controversial in biology right now. On the other hand, just the data seem to be pushing us in that direction. To, to use a famous phrase, the genetic leash is broken. Well, I mean, isn't culture really just a big practical joke on Mother Nature? I mean, we take all these little things she's set up, like, you know, food tastes good, and then we, we use culture and invention to separate the good taste from the nourishment. Uh, sex is fun, but we use technology to separate the fun from the procreation. So culture is in the business of screwing up nature, and she'll probably, like you say, push back one day and then we'll all be gone. But in the meantime, what's the problem? Jeff, what do you think? I mean, that's a, that's a nice, nice thought of John's. Do you agree or disagree? 
Well, culture can be viewed as a, as a mode of adaptation, just like uh, genes can be viewed, except it just responds more quickly. And in order to respond more quickly, we have to be somewhat detached from our genes, but we're not entirely detached. Right. Uh, culturally. And it would be odd if we were entirely detached. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're talking about altruism with Jeff Schloss. You can join our conversation by calling 1-800- You're listening to an encore presentation of Philosophy Talk. The phone lines are closed. Or email us at comments at philosophytalk.org. And Chris in San Francisco is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Chris. Hello there. What's your comment or question? Um, good conversation, guys. I was just thinking about something that happened to me the other day in front of my house. Um, an elderly woman was walking across the street, and she stepped into a pothole and fell over. And I was pulling out of my driveway. And without thinking, I just instantly pulled my car over, ran over to help her, didn't even really check for traffic, and pulled her up out of the street. And it just seemed very instinctual. I didn't think about it much, and it just made me think that, you know, altruism just has to be built right into the brain. Um, and for reasons I don't know, but it, I thought about it later, and it was just very very true that I just didn't think about it. I just acted. Well, but don't you think it was partly because you were well brought up and, uh, you know, uh, your, your parents trained you to, to, to be altruistic? I mean, other people with a similarly evolved brain might have just opened their window and laughed at, at the poor old lady. What do you think, Chris? Are you <laughs> refuted by John's uh, astute observation there or not? It just happened too quickly, you know. Uh -huh. It seems... If I had stopped and thought about it, I could have thought, ah, someone else will help her. Yeah, well, I, I want to jump in here. This is Jeff and be in between you two. Uh, <laughs> it may be uh, something like that may be hardwired into your brain, but it also may be massaged by social conditioning. Mm. So that, for example, uh, in fact, we have empirical data to suggest that people in New York, for example, respond very differently than people in a small town in Wyoming. Right. Uh, to people running out of a gas or falling down, and that gets back to reciprocal altruism. So let me guess: the people in New York are kinder and nicer and more patient. <laughs> Absolutely, well, every th time. <laughs> thanks for that. Thanks for the call, Chris. There is there are some studies though sh that suggest though that like children as young as eighteen months will engage in helping behavior, right? So that that suggests it. It. it, it I mean, there may be a cultural. Conditioning, right. but there's certainly an innate basis for altruism. Absolutely, because cultural conditioning has to work on a substrate that's receptive to that conditioning. Right. We've got more callers on the line. Steve in San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Steve. Hi, good morning. Um, well, I, I was early one morning, I was having, took my breakfast over to, by the St. Francis Yacht Club on San Francisco Bay, and there's a spit of land that runs uh, east of the club, and it forms the part of the harbor uh, where the boats are kept. And there's a bunch of seagulls out there, especially when I show up with my breakfast. I get a lot of new close personal friends all of a sudden. But uh, and there was one old seagull, or I don't know, he looked a little older, but he was uh, sitting down in the middle of the pavement and not moving. And so I threw him a crust of bread, but but it didn't quite go far enough. And, uh, and then a female seagull walked over and knocked it over to the to the other bird that was sort of immobile. Oh, uh, yeah, I've never seen any a seagull give up anything. Come on. But it was a, was a female. Now, I just wanted to tell you that one little story. That's all I have to contribute at the moment. Thank uh, thanks for the call, Steve. What do you think, uh, Jeff? Got any reaction to that? Well, I, I haven't, uh, I, I didn't see the incident, but actually uh, be, in the opening segment, John was talking about warning calls and that in social flocks of birds, 
this kind of uh, group altruism is is pretty common. One one quick comment though, in your comments on the vervet monkeys giving warning calls, <clears throat> it's true that giving a call increases the chances of getting zapped by the predator. But over the long haul, if you're in a group where calls are given mm-hmm. and received, you actually do better. So right. there's no net altruism right. in those behaviors. Right. So that's a complicated thing. I'm going to shift the topic just a, a bit. Uh, so let's grant that there that nature has kind of hardwired an inclination into, uh, toward altruism into many animals, including human beings. But what what would that in and of, in and of itself show about the moral significance of altruism, whether it's right or wrong, commanded here or not. I mean, does that have any kind of payoff for our understanding of morality? Well, I think it does in two ways. First of all, if nature has hardwired altruism I- into organisms, including human beings, the, the current theories, leaving aside magnetics, which mm-hmm. which isn't hardwiring, the current theories say that there are constraints. That, in fact, all the theories we've talked about so far, besides the culture theories, suggest we shouldn't be loving our enemies. So one (laughs) of the implications of this is that, uh, you know, ought implies can, uh, and if certain behaviors are hardwired in, so are certain constraints on behaviors, and there are some who argue the love your enemy moral command is perverse and immoral because we can't do it. Wait a minute, you're, you're, I'm, uh, I'm getting a little lost here. Okay, so one of the things about uh, uh, biological altruism is that it's intense within group and outside group. These animals who are altruistic within group can be very hostile to yes. uh, outside groups. Now, you're, that sounds like you're building that into a moral lesson. Love those who are within your group and despise those. Be very unkind to those outside your group. But how can you get from that biological fact to any kind of moral. Absolutely. I agree with you entirely. I'm, at, I'm not building it into a mm-hmm. moral lesson. I'm just saying one of the challenges of uh, moral prescriptions is what do we do when we think we should do something that there's warrant to believe we're not capable of doing. Right. We've got a caller on this very topic. one 800 This is an encore presentation of Philosophy Talk. The phone lines are closed. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Kevin. Thanks for having me on. Great show as usual. I think there's plenty of evidence from the micro to the macro that we are hardwired. We're social animals. If I do an act of kindness towards someone, their serotonin levels go up, my serotonin levels go up. Anyone who observes the act of kindness, their serotonin levels go up. Low serotonin is associated with depression, schizophrenia, suicide. At the macro level, the most common universal human rights value we have is the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have others do unto you. So there's basically two philosophies or two ideologies, two spiritualities out there in the world. One is based on us and them, and the other says, no, it's just us. And if you say just us, just us, justice, just us, justice, you get justice from a <laughs> philosophy of just us. Uh, what do you think there, John or, or Jeff? What do you think? Thanks for the call. Well, you know, um, I don't know what to think. I, I'm not convinced by the entomolo- <laughs> the phonological uh, step from just us to justice. T- to me, love your enemies, that seems pretty plausible stuff, you know, some of the good stuff to come out of Christianity. Now, take the Hatfields and McCoys, right? They were enemies, and they hated each other. But genetically, they were probably pretty close together. I mean, for all I know, they were both both uh, uh, offsprings from the same second cousins getting married a couple of generations back there in West Virginia. Whoops, do we have any stations in West Virginia? <laughs> Never mind. Now, you know, genetically, I suppose I'm fairly far from uh, uh, from from 
Chinese, since uh, there was not very many uh, Chinese Americans in Nebraska where I grew up. Uh, but but I I don't. I mean, the, the genetic distance doesn't seem to correspond with ill will in but, any particular way. Well, so but, that, this whole thing seems kind of misconceived. But no, but there is this in-group, out-of-group thing, and I think that's really significant. And it does raise a puzzle. I mean, human beings have these, if you think kind of the human psyche is designed by evolution, right? And But you also think we have these ideals of global human community. You know, where do those ideals come from? And... Why, you know, and, and the mechanisms that explain the evolution of altruism, some of them presuppose in-group, out-group kind of competition between group kind of thing. I mean, so can there be an evolutionary explanation or does evolutionary explanation stop at the human ideals of global community and all that? Well, if by evolutionary explanation we mean uh, a natural selection on genes explanation, there probably can't be. And that's not uh, a problem with the theory. It's not even an empirical problem. It's just a logical problem. If you want to explain behavior on the basis of what gets reproduced genetically, uh, if you have a gene that makes you do things that help somebody else and hurts you, it's not going to be around. So, no, we, we can't have an evolutionary explanation in that sense. Now, if you want to think of uh, applied Darwinian logic to ideas, including maybe philosophical, moral, and religious ideas, uh, a phrase that comes to mind is Terry Deacon's usurpation of the biblical phrase, the word becomes flesh. And so there may be these ideas of uh, altruistically investing in not just the near and dear. Are you thinking of memes, uh, ev evolutionary explanation in terms of memes and yeah. all that? Explain so, that. Explain that more. This, well, is, th this word is M-E-M-E, -E, and this, this comes from Dawkins, yeah, too, doesn't it? Yeah, it's just jargon, really. What it uh, probably means is ideas mm -hmm. or values or, or, as you were saying, uh, John, in the opening commitment and one of the things that some evolutionary theorists have done to kind of uh, uh, save uh, the Darwinian paradigm in this case is to try to explain, try to apply the logic of selective uh, and differential transmission, which applies to genes, to memes as well. I'm, I'm not a big fan of that uh, mm -hmm. personally, but it, it does uncouple human behavior from genetic determinism. We've got a call f caller from Davis. Jennifer and Davis is on the line. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Jennifer. Hi. What's your comment or question or observation? Um, my comment and question and observation is that um, I know a lot of people, I'm a lesbian and I'm with a partner, so if I want to have biological someone to donate sperm, um, and uh, uh, I would say the majority of my friends have chosen um, that sort of uh, method of, you know, of having children, I just think it's interesting um, Philosophically, what goes on for people who decide to donate sperm, Je um, and also people who decide um, then to become a surrogate mother or to donate their eggs. Um, and I think it's particularly interesting because I wonder um, about people who decide to donate sperm, knowing that it might go to someone who's homosexual or likely go to someone who's homosexual, and whether that um, how those two sort of pieces. Um, interplay with each other. So, Jeff, what do you think? Thanks for the call, Jennifer. Well, I, I think the crux of Jennifer's comment has to do with uh, the observation that uh, all sorts of uh, people in different cultures choose behaviors that don't maximize their reproductive se success. So there are childless marriages. There are lifestyles that don't result in procreation. There are the long history of benevolent and celibate uh, orders of, mm -hmm. of service. And 
the, the, the fascinating issue here is that human beings are not reproductive maximizers, and right. we can't dodge that. And we're, so that means that the selfish gene hypothesis, which says we're just kind of the tool of our genes, doesn't really apply to human be- behavior. There's a lot of stuff that we do that can't be explained by the idea well, that we're just a tool of yeah, our Yeah, I'd want to say it does apply. It's necessary, but not sufficient to explain human beings. Something more is going on with human beings. You're listening to Philosophy Talk. We're discussing altruism with Jeff Schloss, editor of Altruism and Altruistic Love. We've been exploring the connection between the is of evolution and the ought of morality. In our final segment, we'll look at the extent and limits of altruism. If our propensity towards altruism is innate, how far should it extend? When, if ever, are we morally entitled to put our own self-interest first and ignore the well-being of others? Probing the limits of altruism, plus your calls and emails when Philosophy Talk continues. Do you believe in helping others? Do you believe helping others is indeed helping yourself? I'm John Perry, and this is Philosophy Talk, the program that questions everything. Except your intelligence. I'm Ken Taylor. Our guest is Jeff Schloss, editor of Altruism and Altruistic Love. Jeff, uh, we've got some some email, and let's start start with this one, which raises this we haven't really talked about yet. Uh, this is from Lori, and she says, Doesn't the whole idea of altruism depend on making a distinction between self and other? What if we're all connected, all one, and there's no self, no other? Then assisting any part of the whole helps everyone because we're all in it together. That's an interesting question because the selfish gene idea was that that, that unit wasn't our ordinary unit of what's altruistic. That was what's so weird about it. And then you have the idea that, well, maybe it's it's not particular genes, but families of genes that are closely related. So it kind of depends on what you take as self and other because altruism says it's not being selfish but helping the other. But are we talking about humans or genes or groups or what? Well, if you believe that evolution had a hand in forming the human mind which construes self and other, Mm -hmm. then, then the proposal here from evolutionary biology is that the way we understand self, other, and how we relate to them ought to do well at getting our genes into the next generation. Mm -hmm. And if it doesn't, uh, then we won't construe self and others in that way. So I I think you're right, John. There is sometimes a confusion between the self of the genes and the self of of me. But the relationship is that there's a firm prediction here. I shouldn't construe you in such a way that I help you at net cost to myself if uh, the world behaves in a strictly Darwinian fashion. But there's also, but there's also, you can also, if you begin to think about this in evolutionary terms, I think the email is actually under something. You begin to think about this in evolutionary terms, and all these different evolutionary mechanisms of group selection or kin selection, they say, you know what? It's a complicated dance between the genes over here and the genes over there, right? And they're in these kind of social interaction things, and that's fundamental. So, like, we're fundamentally social creatures. I'm fundamentally designed to see myself as oneself among others and to cooperate with them, right? Right. It's a real complicated dance, first of all, because there are all sorts of ways that genes assemble themselves in, in cells, organisms, families, groups. And so that gets us as far as cooperating with others in our group. And then it's not 
maybe for humans, it's not just genes. It's also cultural ideas, right. uh, which can trump the genes. More, we've got more callers in the line, a lot more callers. Matt in San Francisco. Welcome to Philosophy Talk, Matt. What's your comment or question? Uh, along the lines of what you guys were just discussing, uh, when we think of nature, I think we have to think of nature as a whole, a whole, you could say, whole entity, whole organism. And you would also have to assume that people, I would assume, are 100% part of nature. And nature, uh, along the Darwinian philosophy, definitely does what uh, is best for itself. Correct? Well, uh, nature is a bit of a metaphor, isn't it? I mean, I mean is, is there something that's best for nature? Would, would nature's feelings be hurt if the world came to an end? I mean... Well, no, I would that's be upset. Exactly but. what I'm saying. So, so in evolution, like the strongest gene or the the trait that is most beneficial to a species usually predominates. Yeah, but that that's that there's that's right, uh, Matt. But there's also this thought that Darwin thought us gave us the reality of the nature red and tooth and claw. Nature is not just kind. Nature is vicious. Death is the way of nature. Extinction is the way of nature. The evolution, natural selection is the guys left standing, Jeff, right? It's just the guys left standing. Well, it is the guys left standing, but sometimes the way to stand may involve laying down your life for others uh, if they share your genes, if they may reciprocate. So uh, you can win by cooperation sometimes. Right, right. Okay, now here, but here's another kind of question for you. You know, pure altruism, if an individual were purely altruistic, that kind of sounds like being a chump. I'm sure nature didn't design us just to be chumps. Although I guess some insects are kind of chumps in a, in a way, and they don't re- they don't reproduce, right? They're just the non-reproducing workers. But I mean, really, I mean, where's the line between uh, you know chump and non-chumphood? I mean, how altruistic did nature really design us to be? And morality does it really require us to be chumps, pure chumps, ever? You know, the insect is a funny story because uh, it turns out that those sterile uh, sister insects share more of their genes with one another than they would share uh, if they had their own offspring. So that's Mm. an interesting sidelight. But no, uh, nature weeds out chumps, uh, and morality sometimes, nobody wants to be a moral chump, but to be a moral person... I think of the phrase, uh, honesty is the best policy, but he who is honest for that reason is not an honest person. Somehow morality calls us to seek something for its own ends and not just because there's going to be a self-benefit around the corner, don't you yeah, think? Yeah, but how the, it goes back to Plato's problem that you talked about earlier on. You attributed the comment to somebody I can't remember. But, you know, if you had a, a ring that would make you disappear and you could do all your doings in secret— who would not choose to do all the dirty deeds in secret and get all the benefits, but you'd have the reputation for goodness. You'd get all the benefits of the reputation and all the benefits of immorality. I, how does evolution deal with that problem? You know, that's the free rider problem. Just I'm, You guys are all being good and kind and altruistic. I'm going to pretend you're going to cooperate with me, but in my secret heart of hearts, I'm a defector. I'm a dirty deed doer. Well, in the, in the indirect reciprocity scenario that we talked about, the reputation management scenario, uh, Plato's right. In group selection, Plato wouldn't necessarily be right, that even if you have the secret ring, uh, if we have evolved by group selective mechanisms, uh, we'd be good uh, to those in our group. But what both of those accounts still fail to explain is what's called the dark side of group altruism, Uh, how it is that we can get beyond intergroup hostility and 
back to the the uh, the big challenge: uh, love your enemy. Well, you know, the insects are an interesting case. I mean, I, I like to watch ants. It's a good way of not doing a lot of other more important things. Uh, and where do you draw the line? I mean, of course, we first see ants, you think of the little ants as individuals. But but in terms of their communication and so forth, it's, it's not clear that's the right way uh, to think of it at all. And yet, uh, you know, two two different ant groups of the same species, but with different queens, don't necessarily get along that well. So I don't see too much analogy between the way humans behave and and these biological lessons. I mean, when a guy throws himself on a grenade or or people go off to distant lands where they share very few um, genes, at least relatively speaking, to, to, to fight AIDS almost certainly at the cost of their own health, I, I just don't see the biological explanation as much to do with it. Well, I, I I am thrilled to hear you say that. I I agree with you. Uh, the the ant scenario, their behaviors are so rigidly encoded. There's no recognition of others. So uh, clearly, that doesn't apply to to humans. Although the throwing yourself on a grenade, um, typically people throw themselves on grenades for people in their squadron or platoon. Right. So, so the real cra- tough thing would be uh, throwing yourself on a grenade. For the enemy, Jeff. You, okay, so you're a biologist by training, and you're interested in reconciling science, philosophy, religion. It sounds like you're a culture guy here. With culture, I'm not sure if this is right or wrong. Is culture kind of f- not quite floating free of the biology, but constrained, but not determined by the biology somehow. Is, is that right? I mean, because you think there's this other factor that explains the kind of things John was was thinking about. That can't be reduced simply to biology. This is why I think this is such a fascinating example of a scientific uh, detective story. We've, we've gone through over the last several decades a variety of theories. The world keeps pushing us back. And in the last analysis, many biologists, biologists are convinced that uh, genetic biology is necessary but not sufficient. So, yeah, I think there is something. Uh, our genes are receptive and in fact, we might ask, well, why do these cultural ideas of, of love and uh, giving ourselves for others, what biological root is there for them? But in the last analysis, it's not only biological. But so how, uh, help me, can you help me understand how you think, or maybe you don't have a final view, how you think culture and biology relate? I mean, you say it's not sufficient, genes aren't sufficient, they're necessary. But now where does this culture come from in your view? Is it just kind of well, I mean, our cl- own free creation or what? Well, clearly the capacity for culture, the capacity to, to even talk as we are right now uh, in the world of ideas, to traffic in that world, that, that's a genetic capacity. Uh, presumably ants uh, don't do it. But the actual ideas that do traffic, while they exploit uh, in cognitive and even systems of reward, some ideas feel better to believe than others, the ideas themselves don't come from our genes. And in fact, uh, as, a, as a Christian, I think some of those ideas may not come from humans. Uh, but that's another topic altogether. So here's an analogy, Ken. I mean, think of the university. The great university has many rules, say, for how furniture is to be acquired and distributed and, and uh, how classes are to be scheduled and rooms are to be used. And those rules constrain the behavior of people, <laughs> but they don't determine it, right? Within those rules, many practical jokes will be played upon on the university, right? There'll be this, you know, uh, subterranean way of getting a desk, which has nothing to do with the pure procurement rules, except it is constrained by them. That's my picture of the yeah, between like, culture and nature. Oh, yes, yeah, um, Go ahead. 
Well, th- there are three ways, uh, you know, culture could, uh, genes could determine culture. It doesn't sound like any of us believe that. Uh, John is saying that, well, maybe they constrain culture. I'm not sure that's the case. There's a softer version. Uh, maybe the constraints have been broken. The genetic leash mm. has been broken. But they may influence the central tendencies of culture. There's certain ideas in culture that come up all over the place. That may be genetic. But the limits of cultural va- variability may be unconstrained. Well, you know, this is a fascinating, uh, fascinating topic, and we could devote a whole show to the relation between culture and biology. But, you know, we're just about out of time. And on that note, Jeff, I'm going to thank you for joining us. It's, it's been great a great to be with you. Our guest has been Jeff Schloss. He's professor and chair of biology at Westmont College, editor of Altruism and Altruistic Love, Science, Philosophy, and Religion in Dialogue. So, John, uh, uh, how do you feel about this dialogue between science, philosophy, and religion today after talking about Oh, uh, you know, I think it's a fascinating dialogue. It's kind of uh, uh, <clears throat> what got me interested in philosophy, and, and, and then I spent most of my career worrying about uh, relatively small premises of premises of premises of arguments relevant to the big issues. And now as I get older, I'm trying to get back to the big issues a little bit. But uh, mostly what I learned today came from uh, for, came from our introduction because you worked on the introduction and you gave me all the educated lines. So I, <laughs> as, I, as I read them, I was learning what, what, uh, what it was I was supposed to know. But our, our, our guest was extremely articulate and helpful. And uh, so I'm going away with a, a, a with a more educated level of confusion about altruism. Well, you know, I actually was, fa- I think it was a fascinating uh, set of topics and a fascinating question. And the question with which we ended, how do, you know, these cultural configurations that have to do with morality and our self-image and our self-representation and all that and how we relate to one another, I mean, how do they relate to our biological makeup? You know, I, I mean, when ev- when evolutionary biologists and psychologists started saying, well... You know, altruism is a propensity toward altruism is built in our genes. And then you take a close look. Well, yeah, altruism in a weak sense, but not this big thing that's morally weighty. Well, then where does the morally weighty stuff come from? Well, you say culture, but but then I, I don't know. It sounds to me like Jeff was was, you know, it's like biology makes space for human freedom and creativity and all that to operate autonomously. I'm not sure I believe that because it sounds kind of dual, dualistic and magical to me, and I wish we had more time to probe that. Well, I mean, what do you think? I mean, well, can I, culture really <coughs> float free of our, our biological makeup without well, our being dualist? And, well, I don't think it floats free, but uh, but uh, uh, if, if you take the first step of, 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 of sort of personifying Mother Nature— then and then personifying culture, th- then the two are not cooperators. The culture is is definitely at odds with the mother nature. Yeah, well, that's now both personifications are taking a, a, you know yeah. a big leap into something. But uh, well, and then the one question is: in the long run, is that a sustainable way for human beings to be for their culture to be out of sync with their biology? That's a deep question. No, it's, it's, it's not a deep question. It's an obvious question. It's of course not, and it's all going to come to an end soon, sooner or later, depending on whether you believe Al Gore. So, for the final word on altruism, the final kind word on altruism, we turn to Ian Scholes, the 60-second philosopher. Ian Scholes, regarding altruism, let us talk about Adam Smith, widely regarded as the father of modern economics. He famously wrote in his influential book, The Wealth of Nations, quote, It is not from the benevolence of the butcher, the brewer, or the baker they expect our dinner, but from their regard to their own self-interest. Every individual intends only his own security, only his own gain. And he is in this led by an invisible hand. 
to promote an end which was no part of his intention. By pursuing his own interest, he frequently promotes out of society more effectually than when he really intends to promote it, unquote. We are led by an invisible hand. Wow, we are not alone. The unseen angel of shopping is guiding our every step. Over the centuries since Smith's book first came out in 1776, the invisible hand has come to mean that altruism, regard for others, pity, charity, and so forth are inevitable trickle-down effects of a free marketplace. Any kind of regulation of capitalism just interferes with its elegance and mystery. And yet capitalism is regulated every which way. We have seatbelt laws, hands-free cell phone laws, speed limits, farm subsidies, property tax breaks for Walmart. We have publicly funded athletic stadiums, sales taxes, restrictions on cigarette sales, all the way down to mandated lists of nutritional ingredients on soup cans and chips. So the invisible hand, you might say, wears an invisible restrictive glove. Even the wild west of the World Wide Web, that most invisible of hands, may be fitted soon. Now, true, nobody wants to pay for anything on the Internet, but on the other hand, newspapers and television networks are shrinking. The music industry is suffering. Sooner or later, it seems to this observer, somebody's going to have to pay for something or there'll be nothing left to buy, unless you're satisfied with endless YouTube videos of frisky kittens. The invisible hand, in other words, sure, maybe at work in your local grocery store. At your corner market, the owners might let you buy something and pay for it later. Your local market might even respond to your request for more chocolate bars with nuts and less nougats, say, because you are a regular customer. But the global marketplace, it does not care about your needs. A recent New Yorker article by B. Wilson makes the point, quote, In a flexible, responsive market, producers ought to be able to react to a surplus of one thing by switching to another thing. Industrial agriculture doesn't work like this, unquote. You like corn? Tasteless tomatoes? No? Too bad. So besides the glove of regulation, there are also the gloves of inertia and market-driven demographics, all of which contribute to an altruism-impaired environment. The invisible hand, far from being a helping hand, seems to be contained in an invisible iron glove. The invisible hand is sucker-punching us, it seems to me. The invisible hand is slapping us around. I gotta go. Ian Shows, the only man who can solve a philosophical problem in 60 seconds. Philosophy Talk is a presentation of Ben Manila Productions and the trustees of Leland Stanford Junior University, copyright 2008. Our executive producer is David Demarest. Our production coordinator is Devin Strolovich. Daniel Elstein is our director of research. Lael Weiss is our webmaster. Also thanks to Zoe Corneli, Merle Kessler, Corey Goldman, and Mark Stone. Philosophy Talk is sponsored in part by Powell's City of Books on the web at powells.com. Support also comes from the Templeton Foundation. And from various groups at Stanford University, the Friends of Philosophy Talk, and the members of KALW San Francisco, where our program originates. The views expressed or misexpressed in this program do not necessarily represent the opinions of Stanford University or of our other funders. The conversation continues on our website, philosophytalk.org. I'm John Perry. And I'm Ken Taylor. Thank you for listening. And thank you for thinking.